Bibles to the very last page, Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. We're going to start a new series here for the next few weeks on the subject, Heaven, There's No Place Like Home. (laughs) I never realized until watching that clip how creepy Dorothy sounds when she said that. Have you ever noticed that? I I never remember how spooky, there's no place like home, like she's putting a spell on us or something. But um, it's very fascinating if you think about it that Hollywood, without even realizing it, has done a pretty amazing job of telling the story of God's interaction with humanity. It's really remarkable to think that, that Hollywood has used its incredible storytelling, filmmaking ability to, to represent over and over and over the story of God. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me to learn that the highest grossing films of all time are not romantic comedies, although they all have romance in them. And they're not just straight comedies, although they all have funny elements and moments of humor. Uh, the highest grossing films of all time are not um, uh, sexy, racy films. The highest grossing films of all time are not horror films, although there's always a fear that needs to be faced and overcome in these stories. But the highest grossing films that Hollywood has ever produced are epics. They're adventure films. Um, Webster said that an epic is a poetic composition usually centered on the exploits of a hero and that narrates events or circumstances of this hero in elevated style. I like that. It's a grand narration of the exploits of a hero that get told in elevated style. Um, This past week, I was looking up the the highest grossing films of all time. I looked up the top 50 highest films Every single one of them are epics. Every single one of them are these adventure stories. And if you think about it, every adventure story has the exact same plot line. It varies a little bit, but the marks of an epic are always consistent. In all of these stories, whether it's, whether it's Frozen or whether it's Snow White or Cinderella or Braveheart or Harry Potter, every one of these stories starts out with a glorious past. Things were once good, but then there's been a coup. There's been a rebellion, and now evil is loosed in the land. And in all of these stories, a hero has to emerge. The hero usually shows up unannounced at first, unrealized at first, and there's a small fellowship, a band of brothers, a band of sisters that gather around this hero so that they can, they can hunt down this evil. There, there's always a romance. There's always a love to fight for. There's always a romance set up against the backdrop of a great contest or a great war. There are moments along the way when hope seems completely lost. There's always a final battle. And there's always a moment where the tide miraculously shifts and evil is overthrown and and the glorious past gets restored. There's a moment when Aragorn becomes king, when Robert the Bruce leads William Wallace's troops into battle when Elsa is freed and the, 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 the kingdom is released from its perpetual winter. They, these, these epics always have the same theme and they always end the same way. 
fact, in our fairy tales, they actually say it. They say, and they all lived happily ever after. Whether those specific words are used or not, that's how an epic story ends. It ends with the restoration of what had originally been lost. Uh, the, The second highest grossing film of all time is Titanic. How many of you saw Titanic? I know it's kind of an older film now, but it's still number two of all time. Uh, do you remember how it ends? <laughs> I mean, aside from the ship going down. I mean, we, uh, we, we know that. That's part of history. But do you remember how the film ends? Hollywood did the most unbelievable job of telling the end of the story. At the end of this movie, it's all restoration. At the end of this film, the sunken ship reemerges. The waterlogged, messed up, damaged hull is restored. Everything is beautiful again. Rose is young again. And she sees her friends and they're waiting there to greet her. And she comes up the stairs and there's Jack standing, waiting for her. It's this beautiful, incredible story of restoration. And, um, and the final scene lets us know that after the battle, after the struggle, after the waiting, after the perseverance, all is made new. And these scenes that we've been watching since childhood and that we've been longing for since childhood, they are telling us certain aspects of the biblical epic. They're telling us aspects of the ultimate story that informs all of these lesser stories. Um, The Bible ends in Revelation 22, 7 with Jesus saying, behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Then he says it again in verse 12. He says, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then the very final words of Jesus Christ in our scriptures In verse 20, it's the second to the last verse in the entire Bible. He says it a third time. Yes, I am coming soon. The scriptures tell us that we are living our lives in the middle of an epic story, an epic adventure that's in motion, and it ends with a threefold promise from Jesus Christ to return and to usher in a new kingdom where tears are dried, where evil is overthrown, where justice is served, where healing happens, where beauty radiates around every corner. It's heaven. And we have been longing for this since our earliest days. If we have eyes to see it, we'll see glimpses of this in the games that our children play. We see glimpses of it in the stories that we love in the art that we create, in the virtues that we espouse. Um, We've spent several weeks here at Grace talking about living in exile. We've talked about the fact that as followers of Jesus Christ, we have dual citizenship. Yes, we live here. And yes, your passport might say that you belong to the USA or whichever country you're from. But the scriptures teach us that we have another home, a truer home. In Philippians 3.20, it says that our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the night of Jesus' betrayal, the night of his last supper with his followers, he said these words to them in John 14, verse 1. 
He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. C.S. Lewis said, and you've no doubt heard this quote, I've shared it many times here, Grace. C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself longings that this world cannot satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. In his book, The Weight of Glory, Lewis wrote about something that he called the inconsolable secret. The inconsolable secret was the longing that you have experienced your whole life for love and purpose and hope and destiny and significance. It's, it's a longing for life that we've always wanted, but we've never fully touched in this life. We, we've caught glimpses of it. We've we, we, we've, we've kissed it, but we've never been able to hold it and actually possess it. Lewis described it this way. He said, it's like, <clears throat> it's like the scent of a flower that we haven't found yet. He said, it's like this, the melody of a song that we've never heard, or it's like good news from a country that we've never visited. In other words, we miss Eden, even though we've never been there. The, the scriptures answer to the inconsolable secret that you're carrying today is eternal life. And we sometimes call eternal life heaven. But have you noticed that in church, how many of you have been in church for a while? Have you noticed that in church, we spend a lot of time telling people how to get to heaven, turn away from your sins, renounce your sins, turn to Jesus in faith, receive the free gift that Jesus gave us through the cross, commit to following him as a disciple for the rest of your life. We spend a lot of time telling people how to get to heaven, but we don't spend much time telling them what to expect when they get there. Or we spend all this time trying to make sure that everybody's going to heaven. We ask questions like, if you died tonight, do you have an assurance that you've been saved and rescued by Jesus and you would be with him in paradise. In fact, maybe I should just ask that question this morning. You know, Jesus was dying on the cross and in his final moments, a criminal who was being executed beside him said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And remember what Jesus said? He said, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. So do you have an assurance that if this was your last day on earth, you would be with Jesus in paradise? Do you have an assurance that his blood has, has, has washed away your sins and you have new life in him? See, we, we tell people how to get to heaven or <clears throat> we, I'm gonna practice something here. You could still hear me cough, but not quite as loud. I have a little cough button that I'm playing with on my, my microphone. <clears throat> we tell people, um, uh, we, we bring thoughts of comfort when they lose a loved one based on heaven. So we try and get people to go to heaven or we comfort people by the idea of heaven, but we don't really tell them about heaven and we don't always explain why a biblical understanding of heaven is so important for our lives now. And that is unfortunate because the right perspective on heaven can powerfully influence our life 
on earth today. According to the scriptures, heaven is supposed to be a living hope. It's a, it's a victorious reality that is supposed to inform and animate and help us in this life. So to the degree that we misunderstand heaven, it, it hurts us. We, we drift further in life than we need to. We, we struggle more often than we need to. We feel hopeless more strongly than we need to. Um, <clears throat> the reason, C.S. Lewis said this, he said, the reason that we're so ineffective in this life is because we have ceased to think of the next life. And then Lewis also said, if you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you get neither. Unfortunately for many people, the, the, the idea of heaven has been kind of, I was just going to cough one time and now I stirred something up, I'm sorry. You're all coughing with me? Does that make me feel better? Um, I'm kind of embarrassed, but can somebody throw me some water? I'm so sorry. Right there, from right there, Rick. <laughs> Do it, I'll catch it. Don't open it first. <laughs> Hans said I must be a Raider fan. Okay. <clears throat> okay, so for a lot of people, the idea of heaven has been corrupted. It's been drained of its power, and I think it's been drained of its power for a couple of reasons. Partly it's because we either haven't heard good teaching on it, or all we've heard about heaven are silly expressions. Or we say incomplete things about heaven that it's, it's just not helpful. Like, for instance, when I was a kid, I grew up in church, and we would have a really good worship time in service. The, the Lord's presence would be really strong. Worship was really great. And the pastor would sometimes get up and he would say, friends, just think about this. We get to worship God like this forever in heaven. And I was sitting out there as a little boy, and I was like, what? Are you kidding me? Heaven is going to be church forever? See, I grew up on the Ponderay River in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up snorkeling and canoeing and water skiing and climbing trees. That sounded a lot better than a never-ending sing-along in the sky. <laughs> or, or we try to comfort people with words. In, in Philippians 1, Paul said, it's better to be with the Lord in heaven than to be here in this life. He said, it's better and yet sometimes when we tell people, well, at least he's in a better place. Even though it's true, it, it can almost sound infuriating. Well, I don't want him to be in a better place. I want him to be in this place. Sometimes we say things that are just, just, they're just kind of silly, like, oh, I bet he's up there playing 19 holes on that great big golf course in the sky. And, and I understand what we're trying to communicate with that, but that doesn't sound like something that I can intelligently latch my hope onto. You know how stubborn she is. I bet she's up there giving the angels a run for their money right now. See, that, that, that stuff doesn't sound like, like something that thinking smart people can, can really latch on to. You know, when we, when we make heaven sound like it's halos and harps and sitting on clouds, it sounds cartoonish. I have no interest in playing the harp. I wouldn't mind rocking a toga. Those, those are... Those are comfy, but, but when, <laughs> for you old people, did you ever see that far side where the guy's sitting on a cloud in a toga and he's holding a harp and he's just sitting there and the caption says, wish I brought a magazine. <laughs> 
We've done that to the idea of heaven. We've made it sound cartoonish instead of inspiring. Or we've made it sound just, just, just playful and, and silly, so much so that the science fiction writer Isaac Asimov said, I don't believe in the afterlife, so I don't have to spend my life fearing hell or even worse, fearing heaven. For whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. Where in the world did we get that idea? That heaven is boring, but hell is the party place where all the cool kids go. Um, we, we need to change that. We're going to correct that thinking for the next few weeks in this series. Um, today, I want to do just two things. I want to have us look at the end of the story in Revelation 21. So you can turn there. And I want to just mention two things that heaven does that can help animate and inform our life on this earth. Number one today, heaven puts a period on our greatest trials. And number two, heaven tells us the score in advance. In Revelation 21, heaven puts a period on our greatest trials. See, you and I are living in the comma era. We're living in the comma dispensation, the transition era. What we're longing for is a period. We're living in a comma, but what we're longing for is closure. We're longing for a moment when we're not waiting for something good to happen. We're not waiting for prayers to be answered. We're not waiting for God to come through. We're always waiting, waiting, waiting. Yes, because we're living in a comma, but what we're destined for, what our story tells us we're promised is a period. See, that's why we hate cliffhangers. Cliffhangers are awesome for the producers of Netflix because a cliffhanger hooks you and ropes you in to binge watch another season because you have to find out, is, is she alive or is she dead? Does he get the girl or doesn't he? See, I, I don't want to watch four seasons of Netflix or read 500 pages of a book and then be left hanging. Is the dead guy really, is the bad guy dead or is he just regrouping? We, we, we hate cliffhangers because our story was made for closure. We're waiting for a breakthrough because a day is coming when there is breakthrough. Now, we do touch periods in this life. You will have periods in this life. You will have closure. You won't be waiting forever in every area of your life. But ultimately, heaven puts a period on our greatest trials. Revelation 21. Are you in Revelation? <laughs> I think I've noticed where the book of Revelation is concerned, there's usually two types of people. There's people who never read the book of Revelation, and there are people who only read the book of Revelation. And both of those are not right. There's a blessing attached to reading the book of Revelation, but if all we do is try and figure out everything in the book of Revelation, we can get off track and confused. But Revelation 21 verse 1 says, Then the Lord, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I explained that phrase last week, by the way, in case you weren't here. By the way, did you see the rainbow this week? Jessica and I were stuck in traffic and we saw this massive rainbow. I thought about all of you when we were looking at the rainbow. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. 
And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Then in verse 8, he talks about hell, which we'll also touch on in this series. But think about what this passage tells us about heaven. John, at the end of Revelation, at the end of our story, sees a vision of heaven. And in his sight, in his description, we learn several things. This passage tells us that there is a day coming when Jesus the King will step down from his throne and he will walk up to you and he will take you by the hand and he will lead you to a spring of life giving, rushing, healing water. There's a day coming when Jesus is going to dry every tear from your eyes, literally and physically. Jesus is going to take his thumb and his forefinger and he's going to put them underneath your chin. He's going to lift your gaze to his, just like David wrote about in Psalm 3 when he said, God, you're my glory and you're the one who lifts my head. And he is going to let you cry in his arms. See, this doesn't tell us that there's no crying in heaven. This tells us that when we cry in heaven, God will wipe those tears away. And after he wipes those tears away, we'll never have a need to cry those particular tears again. We are going to weep in God's presence. And it's going to be good. It says in this passage that he'll be a father to us. Now, what does a good father do when their kid's crying? You don't hand them a handkerchief from across a desk. Now, what does a good father do when their kid's crying? You you, you scoop them up, and you hold them so close that they can hardly breathe. Um, In Isaiah 66, 13, God compared himself to a mother who does that. See, sometimes when I'm really hurting, I, I prefer a hug from my mom than my dad. Sometimes moms are more comforting, and God is both. God is going to crush you to his chest and let you cry out your disappointment, your heartache, your depression, your discouragement, and your grief. Um, How many of you are, are due for a moment like that? Sometimes if it's been a while since I've wept, I'm not a big crier, but sometimes I'll ask the Lord to sensitize my, my heart, sensitize my emotions, because there's something cleansing in weeping. There's something cleansing in just being able to let it out and just, just, fall apart in the Lord's presence. Should we just have a quick sob moment right here as a group? I bet some of you are overdue for a good cry. Things won't stay broken in heaven. You will get the closure. You will get the healing that you've been looking for. Um, Have you ever noticed Psalm um, 58? Psalm 58 verse 6 is very fascinating. It says, God, you keep track of all of my sorrows. You have collected all of my tears in your bottle. Isn't that a fascinating verse? That's either weird or it's amazing. He's collected your tears in a bottle. Do you know what that means? It means he's not forgetting. It means he's storing up healing for you. Heaven puts a period on our greatest trials. Heaven lets us know that there is an expiration date for our pain. Uh, And that knowledge affects us. That knowledge becomes an antidote to unforgiveness and bitterness. 
When I understand that heaven puts a period on my greatest pain, when I understand all of this, I'm able to forgive my offender because I realize I am destined for an eternity of forgiveness. I'm destined to experience God's justice and God's mercy. I can embrace the cross in this life because I'm destined for an eternity of resurrection life. We can allow ourselves to be wronged in this life because God has promised to make everything right. We can turn the cheek in this life because Jesus has promised to be there wiping away tears from our cheek. Heaven is healing. It's restoration. It's beauty. In fact, when John starts trying to put this in language we can understand, he uses bridal imagery. He probably couldn't think of anything more beautiful to use to describe it. I think I've officiated around 60 weddings. I don't think I've ever seen a bride that wasn't radiant. He picks the most beautiful thing he can imagine and said, yeah, yeah, it's like that. Heaven is beauty. Heaven is healing. Heaven is restoration. Heaven puts a period on our greatest trials, and heaven tells us the score in advance. Can I just tell you the score in advance? You are going to make it. You are going to finish well. And so are your loved ones. Do you ever hear talks like this? And part of you is like, yeah, this is amazing. And and, and I get that heaven is God's ultimate victory. But then is there ever a part of you that thinks, yeah, but, but what about my personal story? Or what about my loved ones? I know Jesus loves the world and he came to rescue everyone, but is he going to rescue the person that I love? Did you ever struggle with that? Do you ever think, yeah, I get that ultimately God wins, but does his victory encompass my needs and my family? Um, Are there any assurances that God will actually take care of the people that we love the most? Did you ever have that question? Let's think about this for a second. Let's, Let's be many philosophers for a quick second, we we struggle sometimes with this because we understand that we live in a system that was set up to function on a free will basis. The scriptures begin with a choice. The whole biblical story begins with God essentially saying, I am creating family based on love, not robots based on automation. And since I have to 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 operate within this system of love, there has to be an ability to choose because without the ability to freely give love, it's not really love. Love cannot be coerced. Love has to be given. So therefore, here's a tree. Don't eat from this tree. This will be the one little spot right here in your garden where you can make a choice to honor me and obey me. Obedience is love in action. So so here's here's a choice. Here's an opportunity um, for you to love me. All of scripture is a massive appeal to choose life. All through scripture, from beginning to end, we hear heaven shouting, choose life so you may live. And we all know that even though Jesus made salvation possible on the cross, we still have to respond to it. And we still have to embrace it. And he, he initiates, he works on us, he releases grace, and we say yes. And so since we understand this, Here's what we sometimes do. Sometimes when we have loved ones who are struggling, we elevate this big, gigantic power of choice and we put it on a plane that's almost bigger than God. See, I know that God is the all-powerful creator of the universe, but he's awfully prideful 
over here. And I don't know if, if God is big enough to actually soften this prideful heart over here. Or we know that God is the essence of beauty and he radiates creative brilliance and he goes to the ends of the earth to rescue people. But you know, she's awfully stubborn. I don't know. And then we panic. Well, who's greater? Is God greater or is this stubbornness greater? Is, is God powerful? Is love able to, to overwhelm somebody's hard heart or is that hard heart much stronger than God? Now, now we say things like, well, they're really far from God right now. And do you know that that's not even a biblical term? Sometimes people think they're far from God, but they're not actually far from God. Let me read you one of my favorite scriptures. Um, Acts 17, 26 says, From one man, God made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. David said it this way, Psalm 139.7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, the light will become night around me, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night will shine like the day, the darkness is as light to you. Yes, we humans can rebel. We have rebelled. And yes, a person can rebel to the point that their character hardens into an inability to respond to this free gift. But that hasn't happened with your loved ones yet. God is still at work in your family's life. God is still at work in your coworkers. There's still an epic story underway. There's still a rescue mission happening. And let me just wrap up here, going back to where we started with the, the epic motif if you have a loved one who's struggling, and if they need a hero, what, what kind of a hero do you think they need? If you were to customize uh, the hero, um, I have a little bitmoji that I created that looks exactly like me. It's this little cartoon version of myself, and it looks exactly like me, and I send it to Jessica all the time, and she's probably tired of it. But um, if you were to create, not a bitmoji, but if you were to create a portrait of the ultimate hero, what would you sculpt? You probably would sculpt someone who was awfully strong. But not only were they awfully strong, they're probably awfully gracious and kind. You, you probably would select for your loved one's hero somebody who was wise enough to see through the deception and the trickery and the dishonesty. You'd probably choose someone who was, who was able to see the essence of where they were but still love with unconditional love. You'd probably choose somebody who loved them enough to actually give their life away for them but then if they had to give their life away, they actually, it wouldn't be the end of the story because they were actually stronger than death. They could come back from death and actually defeat death itself. That would be quite a hero, wouldn't it? Do, do you know anybody like that? Do you know anyone who's on the hunt like that, who's on the move? Your family story is far from over. Now listen, we have a significant role to play in reaching the world around us. God is the one who initiates. God is the one who's pursuing. We have a role to play in loving people, pursuing people, praying for people, reaching out to people. But please, do that with one eye toward heaven. 
Don't do that from a place of frantic despair. You do it knowing that heaven tells you the score in advance. In fact, do it the way Winston Churchill approached the second half of World War II. Um, Jessica and I were um, with Amber at her church a couple of weeks ago, and I felt so bad. My mind started drifting during the sermon. I was sitting next to Amber, and I was taking notes, and then my mind totally wandered. And, and then I felt bad for the preacher, and then I felt bad for you, in case, you're, <laughs> in case your mind wanders when I'm talking. And then I felt bad for me, in case your mind wanders when I'm trying to talk to you. But, but right or wrong, I, I opened up my journal, and I, and I started rereading some of my favorite Winston Churchill quotes. You know how Churchill responded when he got news of the bombing at Pearl Harbor? Remember, he had stood alone. It was, it was Great Britain against the might of the, the Nazi regime. And, and he was, they were the only ones left standing. And, and it was about a year and a half before the United States came into the war. And when Pearl Harbor was bombed, of course he wasn't happy about the loss of life and the devastation. But he recorded afterwards in his journal, he wrote that once he heard news of the attack at Pearl Harbor, do you know what his response was? He said, so we have won after all. Because he knew that the United States would be all in after that moment. And then he said, I didn't know how long it would take or what trials we would face along the way, but the outcome was secure. From that moment on, the end was never in doubt. Hitler's fate was sealed. Mussolini's fate was sealed. He said, the British Empire will go on and we might not even have to die personally. And that's what heaven does for us. It lets us know there is a gigantic, cosmic, massive, creative rescue mission underway. And God's grace is on the move. You win. And so now we go out there and we enforce the victory. The score is already settled. We have to go out and then enforce what's already legally been purchased. So yes, there are fights to be fought, but we're going to win them. Listen, we're not more passionate than God is. We're not more committed to the liberation of our planet than God is. We don't care more about trafficking or, or our siblings or our children or our parents than he does. So we approach our life knowing that there's a period on the end of our trials. There's an expiration date on your greatest pain. And we know the score in advance. And so, yes, it's grueling, it's sweaty, it's difficult, it's tough, but we're anchored. We're tethered to a living hope. And we know the outcome. Sometimes it seems like God's not doing a whole lot. Sometimes it seems like God is moving so slowly. But do you know what? That's an awesome thing. G.K. Chesterton said, if someone is going down the wrong road, the worst thing that could happen is for them to move quickly. God's patience is a good thing. Let me close with this. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness, He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Heaven is the reminder, it's the promise that God has not given up on humanity. It's his promise that the outcome is in his hands and we can trust him every step of the way to that determined outcome. So what I wanna do today is I want us to ask God to make heaven more real. In this series, I'll, I'll get a little bit more into some anthropological evidence for heaven and near-death experiences and the reasons that we can believe that this is more than just a scripture verse. Um, and we'll look at more things that Jesus said about heaven. And I, I want to try and blow our minds with the reality of what this means for us. Mm -hmm.